Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Before we get to today's guest, I've got a couple of updates about how we structure the show and what's coming up, and I've got a request of regular listeners. So, today's episode is going to be the first of a two-part episode, and this is a format I'm going to be increasingly using for upcoming guests and upcoming episodes. Probably more by accident than design, I'm tending to have slightly longer conversations that I'm breaking up into two. And I took to Twitter to ask about this, and I got a few comments, and the general thrust was, we like the longer conversations, but a lot of us listen to this show during activities that maybe take 40, 50 minutes max to do. So if you are having longer conversations, break them up. And that works fine for me as well. So I think that's what we're going to be doing going forward. So today is going to be a two-parter. I'll introduce that in a second. After today's episode and the second part of it, I'm going to do an Ask Me Anything. We got over 600 comments on the social media pages, as well as when I posted it to Reddit, on the Free Will episodes. So I want to respond to some of the thoughts, comments, criticisms we got there. And if you have questions you want me to answer, um, hit me up on social media, direct message me, my email is on the website. So if you check out our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, You can find the links to all of our social media, as well as the email that I use for the show. So please do send me comments, questions, random angry outbursts, and I'll be responding to some of those in uh, two weeks' time. After that, we're going to have some more two-parters coming up. I will be talking with the co-host of one of my favourite podcasts, Very Bad Wizards, Tamla Summers. That'll be another two-parter. I've just recorded a two-parter with Professor Colleen Murphy on transitional justice. And I have a stonking three-parter with one of, I think, the world's greatest public intellectuals, Orlando Patterson, on slavery and freedom in Western history. So, all of that's coming up. Just before we get to today's episode, I wanted to just talk to you all about how we fund the show and um, make a request for suggested donations. If you are already sponsoring the show, thank you so much. Feel free to skip ahead about four or five minutes to today's episode. This does not apply to you. For anyone else, if you are a returning listener to the show, then I would like to ask you to consider sponsoring it. So, as a bit of personal news, I've just left after four years of service, which I'm very proud of, uh, Amnesty International. I generally haven't talked about my work on the podcast. I've tried to keep it roughly separate. But I've spent all of my 20s, I've just turned 30, so I've spent about 10 years working in activism, in campaigning, in fundraising for social justice causes for human rights in America. And I've decided to just take some time out. I'm going to go traveling. I'm going to see my family for personal reasons. And I'm kind of at a crossroads where I'm just sort of deciding what I want to do. Because as much as I'm very passionate about working in politics, I'm very proud of a lot of what we've, what I've been able to contribute to gay rights, to immigrant rights, to the rights of minorities in this country. It's also very tiring work, both physically and emotionally. And I don't know. I really am taking a few months to just sort of think about what comes next. I love doing this podcast. I'm not necessarily sure that it is or will ever be like a career with big scare quotes around it. But in this time when I'm taking a moment to think about everything, I do just want to make sure that the podcast at the very least can cover its own costs. 
and we'd only need another two or three donors to sign on. The costs aren't huge, it's just like hosting costs for the website, for unlimited storage on SoundCloud, stuff like that. Now, there would be another option to funding the podcast, which would be to run ads. We're about at the threshold number of listeners where we could attract advertisers, and I'm happy to go whichever way the audience wants, but here's my logic for doing a requested or a suggested donation rather than running ads. I just don't like ads. Like, if I'm listening, there's a whole load of podcasts that I like, and I find it really disruptive when in the middle of the podcast, and apparently advertisers want you to do it in the middle because that gets the most listens, the host who you're engaged with suddenly starts telling you about a brand of underwear. I, I find it really a jarring experience as a listener, and particularly for long-form, sustained, engaged conversations where this is a challenging podcast, I just think it would really throw the audience, and I think it would make it a significantly worse listening experience. So that leaves me with either charging for the show, which I absolutely don't want to, I want it to be available for anything, or saying, we suggest $2 an episode. And that's that's the, the, the method I'm going down here. Now, believe me, I understand that it can feel counterintuitive to pay for content online. We're used to getting it for free, but then the price of that is that everything has a million pop-ups and a million ads in it. So I'm preferring to do it this way. And to put it in terms that... Um, political theorists might understand, consider this to be a collective action problem. If we could get 1% of the show's viewers to sign on for a suggested donation, the show would be self-funding. If we could get 3% to sign on, we would have a small budget to work with. And I've got all sorts of ideas about what we could do with that. So here's my pitch. I want you to think about what would be an item of equivalent value to an episode of this podcast. One we use all the time when we do fundraising in non-profit is a cup of coffee. I live in New York, so a cup of coffee here is at least $2. If you live somewhere where perhaps there's a different uh, economic situation, do whatever the conversion is. But if you get the same satisfaction from an episode of this show than you do from a cup of coffee, consider supporting it on that basis. And if you can, a cup of coffee isn't intuitive for you, think about what an item of equivalent value for you would be and sponsor it on that basis. Sponsorship is really, really, really easy. You can go to our Patreon the link to that is on the website, it's, it's on every episode page, there's just a little P in orange, just click on that, it'll take you through. So it's really easy to set up, and you can choose the amount that seems right to you. I'm suggesting a couple of bucks, but really that's up to you. And I think, again, to use a political theory wonky language, it's really easy to be a, a free rider. Um, with these things, and I've been guilty of that myself for the longest time. I'd use up my 10 free articles to the New York Times before I eventually sucked it up and was like, you know what, I can pay $7 a month for this. If I can afford Netflix, I can afford this. Um, I'll make a couple of provisos to that. If this is the first episode that you're listening to, this appeal is not directed to you. Check out the episode, hopefully you like it, and then if you find yourself listening to more of the show, then please do consider a donation. And that's actually another huge advantage of this method of funding, is that you can decide. You can have a cup of coffee first, and then decide if it's worth your couple of bucks to buy it. However, if you're returning after having watched... I always say watched, listened to... 
you can tell I'm a professional at this. But if you're returning to us from having listened to other episodes, then please do consider funding it. I'll make one final proviso, which is I know the show goes out to a lot of students. Students are in all sorts of different financial positions. So if you are in a position where you can walk into Starbucks, say, and buy some fruity, overpriced coffee that has the syllables Chino in it, then consider sponsoring the show. If, and by the way, no judgment, I have been in this position as myself as a student any number of times. If you are right now working out a way to make $20 last two weeks, this appeal is not directed at you. Please enjoy the show for free. I do not want to be taking anyone's last dollars as a purely moral issue. For people who are not in that position, please consider sponsoring the show so that people who are can enjoy it for free. That's the final thing I'll do with this pitch. I'm wrapping it up. But by sponsoring the show, you allow people who are not in a position to to access the amazing and really genuinely amazing, I cannot believe they answered my emails amazing, uh, speakers that we have on. You're allowing that to go out to students and educators and interested parties all over the world for free. So while I myself am working out what I want to do with my life, I do not I mean, it'd be amazing if it did, but I do not expect this to be like a primary source of income for me or anything. But if we could get it to the point where it was self-funding, and maybe even we had a small budget to play with, that would be really, really amazing. Thank you for listening to this appeal. Please do check out our Patreon page. And now to today's guest. Today, I will be talking with Professor Theresa Bejan of Oxford University, where she's a professor of political theory. Prior to coming to Oxford, Dr. Bejan taught at the University of Toronto, and she received her PhD with distinction from Yale University in 2013. She's the recipient of the American Political Science Association's 2015 Leo Strauss Award for the best doctoral dissertation in political philosophy, and she's the author of Mere Civility, Disagreement and the Limits of Toleration, which will be the subject of our discussion today. So this is a two-part episode. In the first part, we look at religious fundamentalism, disagreement, tolerance, and intolerance in the early American colonies, particularly in the case of Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island. In the second part, we'll be applying some of those ideas to contemporary American political debate and contemporary political incivility on both the left and the right. So, that was a little bit of a longer introduction than we normally do. Thank you for listening to it, and without any further preamble, it is my absolute pleasure to present you Professor Theresa Bejan. joined today by Professor Theresa Bejan from Oxford. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So before we jump in to talk about political civility in hopefully a civil manner, um, do you just <laughs> want to introduce yourself and some of the ideas that you find most interesting and that you study? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, I... I'm a uh, associate professor of political theory here at Oxford and a fellow of Oriel. I've been teaching here for um, three years now, and before that, I was at the University of Toronto. So I've and I'm an American by by birth. So I keep on finding myself kind of spinning farther and farther out from <laughs> from, uh, from the states. But uh, yeah, my I like to think of my work as being 
a form of um, historically informed political theory. And so that's a, it's a kind of combination of political theory and the history of political thought. But um, really, the idea is that in order to understand what political arguments are doing, one has to have a strong sense of the context in which they were originally um, formulated and articulated. And so that's a good kind of Cambridge School, Skinnerian, uh, you know, intellectual history point. But um, but it doesn't stop there. I sort of, in, in my own work, I press on then to think about, well, what happens when we think about political concepts or arguments historically? What lessons might that then open up for us in thinking about um thinking about politics today. So in my own work, I've I've really focused on looking at what, you know, political theories and practices from the 17th century and in England and, and America, what they can teach us today about, you know, some of these recurring problems we keep facing. So, you know, in, in, in the book, it's the problems of um, toleration and, and uncivil disagreement. And, you know, in, in, my, in my new work, it's about... Um, thinking, you know, problems of, of realizing uh, equality as a, as a matter of political theory and practice. And I just, I think that this is a, an exciting way to approach things and, and not least of which, because I, I like the way in which it rather kind of explodes what I find to be a really artificial division of labor in British um, political theory between kind of analytic political philosophy on the one hand and intellectual history on the other. So part of what I'm trying to do is to just say, no, you know, political it, it, we do political theory because we think that theory and practice go together and that relationship is a matter of inputs as well as outputs so you know a kind of historical sensibility is really crucial to understand kind of what practices and what institutions are informing the grand abstractions or principles that we would then hope to apply and um, the book is mere civility that you just mentioned That's right what we're what we're going to discuss today. When did right. you start that? You presumably started that before. Um, you presumably started working on that before some of the most notable examples of incivility, <laughs> like the Trump presidency <laughs> and so on, right? Right. Well, yeah. The book came out. So the full title is "Mere Civility and Disagreement and the Limits of Toleration." And you know, the book came out in January two thousand seventeen. At which point, everyone started congratulating me on my very timely monograph, and I just said, yeah, "Look, this is my dissertation monograph. I've been working on this for you know, eight years." Um, so yeah, I joke that it began as an untimely dissertation, um, but. That's right. I mean, I, I got on to the topic of civility because I got on to the really fascinating and I think underappreciated um, insights that, you know, that early modern theorists of toleration were bringing to bear on very, you know, challenging problems of coexistence. And at the same time as I was reading um, people like Roger Williams, who are thinking about uncivil disagreement in the context of the colonial encounter or in their fights with them, um, you know, other uh, evangelical sectarian Christians in the new world, you know, at the same time that Roger Williams uh, is going on about civility, you know, the, the, it was, I think, um, Barack Obama's first inaugural, uh, you know, intoned the theme of civility and then sort of, you know, the, the, this sort of huge civility initiative in American politics. And so what really intrigued me was just the idea that um, a lot of the contemporary discourse was was informed by an idea that the kind of the crisis of civility that American politics was facing was somehow unprecedented, that it was the product of, you know, technological changes, you know, demographic changes that, you know, people were really sort of saying, oh, this is, you know, this is, we haven't seen a problem like this before. And then at the same time, I'm reading all of these things from the 1600s, you know, people saying ex the exact same thing in response to the printing press and, uh, and the, you know, spiraling, um, spiraling uh, religious divisions after the Reformation. So I thought that um, there's a really interesting parallel to be explored. And um, yeah, and that, and that generated the dissertation, which in turn um, generated the book. Yeah, so let's start at the beginning then, and then hopefully by the end we'll be back at our mm -hmm. current so-called crisis of civility. But you mentioned Roger Williams and uh, the formation of uh, Rhode Island, right? Right. Um, I think we often think about the founding of America as like quite a secular thing. Like you've got someone like Jefferson who was quite deist. You've got a lot of the founders who were sort of recognizably secular to us. 
but mm. that, that there's the sort of legal you know first amendment and stuff but then there's the actual society and the people living in it who have to be mm. neighbors with one another and the challenges they faced in like living next door to this person mm. are actually like way more than the challenges of like living next to like a Trump voter or something. Can you can you talk a bit about that and specifically like the, the level of religious hostility that existed yeah. in the early American colonies? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that um, as an early modern uh, intellectual historian, I, um, I was really just struck by how divorced our understanding of the theory of the American founding has really become from the actual practice and social practices of, you know, conditions on the ground. We sort of take for, and especially I think we find this in, in, in political theory, um, in Anglophone political theory, which really is kind of, you know, at least, you know, for, for, for Rawls and Dworkin at least, was a kind of trying to spell out the kind of theory of constitutional liberal democracy in America. Um, and, you know, what, what the American Constitution is, is a kind of working out and, you know, applied kind of political theory, um, which is all well and good until you sort of remember the society that generated <laughs> this, this peculiar set of, uh, of institutions. And right. So one thing I really do want to bring out in the book is just, you know, the idea that a lot of Americans have of the founding as a bunch of, you know, reasonable, deistic, you know, proto-secular gentlemen coming together and, you know, working out a beautiful theory and then applying it um, really misses out uh, a crucial, perhaps the crucial part of the story, which is, you know, how did how did these particular institutional arrangements, and by that I mean the sort of separating church and state in, 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 in the form of complete disestablishment, um, which was not the case in, in most places, um, but then also in the idea of securing individual rights of conscience, so specifically of worship, speech, and association, although famously there's no, um, you know, there's no uh, right to association spelled out in the, the Bill of Rights. But, you know, how, how did how do we sort of stumble upon that as the solution to um, as a kind of recipe for harmonious coexistence? And, and the unlikeliness of that solution just becomes more and more staggering when one considers the problem of coexistence as it was being experienced in, in the British colonies of North America. So again, you know, I think we, we tend to look back as political theorists and say, oh, you know, it was just kind of doctrinal disputes between European Christians. Right. So the differences were pretty small or, you know, narcissism of small differences. And, you know, you know, if you look, if you look at it, I mean, just the staggering diversity, the staggering diversity, cultural, um, linguistic. Uh, and I'm not just talking about the encounter with the American Indians here. I'm also talking about the staggering diversity uh, among the European colonizing peoples. I mean, you know, in, in the time that I'm, I'm writing about in the 1630s and 40s and 50s, I mean, you know, at that point, New Sweden is still a going concern. <laughs> Not only New Amsterdam, but New Sweden. Um, so, and, and then diversity within the American people. So, you know, one of the things that Roger Williams, who, as you say, went on to found the colony of Rhode Island, one of the things he knows very well is that tribal politics is incredibly complicated, and the differences between the American tribes are, are incredibly salient. Um, and so, on top of that, all of that diversity, then you throw these incredibly vociferous, um, zealous, and embittered um, religious enmities that are being imported. You know, that, that are being shipped from from the old world to the new. Um, so, one of the things I try to bring out in the book is just trying to show. Um, just how uh, just how threatening doctrinal disputes between Europe European Christians could really be, and how many demand you know in, in the idea. I think we have a kind of um, caricature of early modern Protestantism as just being oh you know it's about belief right it's about people and you know individuals believing no 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 I mean these are really competing visions of how not only to believe but how to belong how to order a society so um so you know in the book I talk about um you know, just all of the forms of evangelical Christian Christianity that were emerging, you know, with the extreme version being people like the Quakers, who see it as a duty of conscience to violate 
social norms, to, to interrupt other people's worship, to insult them to their faces, to, um, to interrupt, you know, court proceedings, to, you know, in this, you know, the, the, the Quaker idea of going naked for a sign, you know, may sound like a kind of, uh, kind of harmless hippy dippy sort of uh, thing now, but just imagine that you know you're doing this in 17th century Salem, Massachusetts, and you might think that oh right, maybe uh, maybe uh, maybe there's sort of radical differences. Back well. a tiny bit earlier, you have people like the anti-Baptists and so mm-hmm. on, and you read them, and it's just it sounds like some of these like California cults at their very worst. <laughs> exactly, and they're so incredibly. Um, so incredibly righteous yeah. in, in the knowledge of, of their own righteousness. I mean, but just, it's... just to nail the religious point in, they're sort of like what I think of as like the Sunday school version of American history, which was there mm-hmm. were these mean old Catholic governments in Europe who were oppressing mm-hmm. everyone and just, just not letting them be. And they all came to America and lived happily and harmoniously there. But a lot of the time, the reason that people were being oppressed is because they were religious lunatics. And... <laughs> They were absolutely unable to live with their neighbours in Europe. And just to really like try and draw a modern analogy, you have people who have religious convictions every bit as certain and strong as the Taliban at their worst today, yes. and every bit as willing to carry those convictions into action, even absolutely. if it means violating the social and laws of the countries that they're living in. Mm-hmm. And like the Middle East today, there's any number of different groups of them that, yes, theologically might appear indistinguishable to the outsider, but as a matter of tribal identity, hate each other and are really willing to kill each other. Yeah, sort of the idea, again, Sunday school version is right, and we have this really domesticated understanding of what the Reformation was about. But the idea that the Reformation of, of the church also entailed the reformation of, of, of civil societies, of states, in line with the principles of primitive Christianity. I mean, this was just intuitive. And the idea that, you know, reforming zeal, uh, you know, starts in the church and then continues to communities. I mean, that, that was, that, that was, I think that, you know, in terms of what people could agree on, they could agree on that. What they couldn't agree on was exactly what the principles of primitive Christianity exactly were. Um, so I think that, that that's that's right. And just, again, getting, I think this is particularly important for political theorists and philosophers as well, just getting rid of this, I think, really anachronistic idea that what religion is, and, you know, as a product of the, of the Reformation, is religion is a private matter of belief. That's just, you know, you couldn't be more distant from the actual, the actual, um, uh, you know, d- divisions that were initiated by the Reformation. I mean, this is a fight about how we're going to constitute our communities because salvation is understood as something that doesn't doesn't hinge on belief. It hinges on on righteous living and righteous living together. And so, you know, so already this is causing lots of mayhem and havoc in the old world. I mean, and then what happens in, in the new world is that, you know, the, 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 <laughs> these fanatics self-select, <laughs> Right. You know, they self-select, you know, and so I, I joke in the book and in my other writing on Williams. I mean, you know, it, it, these are this is a motley crew at best. These are not the most promising materials. You, you find <laughs> the ISIS members who are least able to live with other ISIS members, <laughs> right. and you take right. them with the Buddhists who are least able to live with other Buddhists, and you start a country of them all. This is yeah. not an auspicious oh, wow. beginning, right? <laughs> What could go wrong? It's not a, and it's just, but also that's the other thing I just like so much about it. I mean, one thing that I try to convey my students when I'm sort of proselytizing to them about the joys of doing historically informed political theory is just how surprising the past that seems the most familiar really is and how much fun and just how unlikely the things that we think most familiar really are and were. Um, the fact that this should work is just impossible. And I, I mean, and I just want to add one thing. I mean, it was implicit in what you said, but let's just make it explicit. Is that, I mean, it was the case in in the old world and in, in, in old England, um, as in New England, that the churches that were persecuting were not the most extreme, hardline, theologically intolerant churches. No, it's the they're moderate. attempting to maintain normalcy. Exactly. It's the moderate established churches that end up persecuting hardliners 
fundamentalists who are incapable of compromise. Um, and that pattern repeats itself again and again in the history of uh, in the history of persecution, the history of church-state relations. And the really fascinating thing, and it's the beginning of Roger Williams' story, is, is that pattern repeats itself in Boston. I mean, Roger Williams gets exiled from Massachusetts Bay. In fact, they try to deport him back to England. <laughs> That's the sentence. And he escapes in the middle of the night. But, you know, Boston is just at, at their wits end with Williams because he just will not he will not see reason. He will not, he, he will not, you know, accommodate himself to the society in which he lives. But just to outline why the sort of public-private divide is just not at all going to work for these people, is you have to put yourself in the head of people who really believe that heaven and hell are real things. And yeah. that these are really places that you're going to go. And yeah. it's almost like a utility monster, right? Anything else just falls <laughs> before that. Like, if that is a real thing, anything else is trivial. And everything, and it's like, I, I made the point with um, uh, Dale Martin, um, imagine like how we respond to like violent pedophiles or something, mm -hmm. right? Like, of course they should be locked up. But, like, if someone was, like, coming after your children, you would take action even if the authorities wouldn't. And yeah. a heretic, a disbeliever, someone who's going to drag your children to hell is as real a threat to your kids, if not much more so. And because of that, there's just a very clear line that, that is not... I think when we look at the contemporary Middle East or, like, burning witches in the Middle Ages, mm -hmm. we, we just... Because we're so secular, we process it as just a societal descent into lunacy. But they're mm -hmm. actually behaving completely reasonably yeah. once you grant certain worldview assumptions. And because of that, it's just a bright line from a fundamentalist belief in the afterlife to persecution and political authoritarianism. And that's almost a universal, except in America just the opposite happens. Right. And so reason. it's trying to understand what happens and why it, you know, what, what was different. I mean, there, there's a way in which you know, in the book, I, I really came around to, to, to seeing, you know what, America really is exceptional, but it may not be exceptional in the way that we've been in the habit of telling ourselves it's exceptional. Right. But there really is something, um, there's something about how how this story plays out and how because of the high proportion of radical, you know, as we would say today, fundamentalist, uh, evangelical Protestants, because of just you know, that, that leads that leads things to develop differently in the colonies. And um, I mean, I would just say that, you know, one thing I, I would want to to a line I would want to draw, maybe perhaps there are two points worth making. First, a line, I would want to draw a line just generally between theological intolerance on the one hand and kind of persecution on the other, right? I think one of the problems that we have as political theorists and historians, political thought especially, is that we haven't been particularly interested in persecution as a phenomenon, right? We sort of say the interesting thing is toleration, persecution simple. If you think that someone's a, a heretic, then obviously you're going to you're gonna persecute them. But actually that doesn't at all follow. So the conditions of sort of when, what sort of religious differences, what sort of heresies are persecutable and, and, and which ones aren't, I think is also a really important part of the story. And there's a lot more work actually to, to do there. Um, mm. But I mean, one point I just make in the book is, you know, it's it's just been it's long been the case in in Christianity, at least, to say that you know infidels are are much easier to tolerate than heretics, mm. right? Because heretics pose a threat in precisely the way that you were alluding to. Heretics are you know uh, are um, are uh, gangrenous members in the body of Christ. They're uh, they they pollute the body of Christ. Whereas an infidel who's you know outside of the church can be tolerated, can be you know can be um, dealt with. Whereas with a heretic, that you know the thought is well, it needs to be that that person needs to be purged. There's a similar distinction within um, Islam in terms of the conditions where you would kill someone for apostasy. Is Islam right. can accommodate? Um, like Jews and Christians living within it, within certain conditions and restrictions, but an ex-Muslim preaching against the faith is absolutely intolerable. Right. And that seems almost, for, for very similar reasons, in that they're more, that's what's really going to be dangerous. Socially. Yeah, that's um, right. 
So, I, I've done I've yeah. done some empirical work actually on this. Just as a side note, I mean, with a with a um, colleague in comparative politics, where we try to test for the convert effect, and we sort of find that you know, just even even for secular citizens, you know, across secular differences, political differences, and religious differences, people find converts away from their own position to be to be most threatening. You know, and this is a this is a sort of robust finding. It's something we want to do more work on. But um, but just the, just one more point before we move on. I mean, it, it goes to your point about the the salience of 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 heaven and hell and beliefs about the afterlife. I mean, another thing I think it's really important to break down, and what historically informed work on toleration can help us break down, is breaking down this sense that I think political theorists often work with that there's a hard and bright line between religious arguments on the one hand and political arguments on the other or rather religious right. non-arguments on the one hand and political arguments on the other, right? So that so religion is the realm of faith, politics is the realm of reason. No, I mean, <laughs> both have elements of faith, both have elements of reason, and both, you know, one of the things I like about looking about, uh, at questions of coexistence in the 17th century is that, you know, is, is taking these seriously as, as arguments, um, and, and the positions being put forward as perhaps alien, but nonetheless reasonable on the, on, you know, under the circumstances in which they're being formulated. I mean, it's just worth saying again, you know, that not only are these people, um, do they have, you know, strong beliefs in, in the existence of heaven and hell, um, you know, these people, I mean, not only do people have strong beliefs in, 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 in the, in the after, in, you know, the, the divine uh, and eternal punishments and rewards, but also the proximity of these. I mean, this is a really millenarian age. I mean, in 1666, people, you know, it's the year of the beast. Everybody's looking for signs of the end times. In 1666, you get a fifth monarchist uprising in London as, right. a, you know, the hopes of speeding on the apocalypse. So really, I mean, this is the, the getting yourself into that mindset as well helps you to see just sort of how high the how high the stakes were so how how did we um <laughs> williams right because from i i think you introduced me to him i didn't know i knew about him before but this was someone who they were not like a squishy religious moderate in any sense right like really believed that their neighbors were worshiping the devil right, right. um and was were, were like and really believed, I guess, also it would follow that the neighbours were a social threat who were, like, you know, going to send their children to hell. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, you get um, a, a, one of the most pluralistic societies ever to have existed at human history at that point. So talk me through... That seems almost just like a deus ex machina, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, how how was this possible? Um... Yeah, I, I I think that we can't, one can't emphasize enough just how radical the lively experiment, as it was called, in Rhode Island was. And not only is it, you know, was it the most pluralistic society seen up to that point? I mean, I would submit that it still remains one of the most tolerant societies the world has ever seen. Um, and this founded by a man who, you know, left Massachusetts, left Boston because the Puritans weren't puritanical enough and moved to Salem, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because he found it more congenial. <laughs> a man who thought women should wear veils and, you know, was constantly preaching at, about the... The, the, the Middle East system. analogy isn't crazy for these people, No, right? it's not crazy at all. It's not crazy at all. And, and one of the things that, you know, vexed me most in writing the book, I mean, I knew very little about Williams. I knew nothing about Williams before I encountered him in grad school. And, you know, I just loved learning about him. But one of the things that really annoyed me was the sort of secularized, domesticated version of Williams that you get in work by people like Martha Nussbaum. Um, you know, Nussbaum's amazing, but her work on Williams, it just really, it, it, it gets, it gets, it manages to, to efface exactly what's so interesting about him. You know, for, for, for Nussbaum, Williams, because of the society he founded in Rhode Island, which looks like a secular tolerant society on a kind of liberal model, you know, she assumes and others have assumed, well, he must be a liberal. He must be a secular liberal in some way, but you know, sort of showing exactly that that's not the case. He's a he's a he's a fundamentalist, evangelical, separatist Christian, and it's that theology and and ecclesiology out of which this particular set of institutional arrangements that we today associate with quote unquote secular liberal toleration. That's you know that's what I wanted to understand, and so. 
I mean, one thing just to note is um, that Williams, when he's when he's talking about building a wall of separation between church and state, I mean, this is something that people know, but it's worth stressing. He's when he, he's just as concerned about you know keeping the church free of pollution as he is from keeping the state free of pollution. I mean, he's worried about the latter too, but um, but in a way, I mean his conviction about the possibility of a tolerant society comes from the fact that because he's so exacting in spiritual matters, because he has such a high sense of what's required for Christian virtue and salvation, he just has this sense of civil society as, um, as polluted, right? As a kind of, as a place where you rub along together with infidels, heretics, and uh, and just bad neighbours. <laughs> and um, the, the theological grounding for that is like the fallen nature of man, right? The, this central Christian idea that we are in a state of disunity with God, whatever that might mean. But, yeah. but, the, but the idea of, I guess in secular terms, you might say like imperfection, estrangedness. Yeah, that, I, that's how you theologically get from fundamentalism to toleration, which doesn't seem like the clearest line. Yeah, I think that that's really, um, I think that's really right, and that's that that's the, the sense of the fallenness, the fallenness of man, but also the fallenness of the world. And so, having a sense of the fallenness of the world, a really profound sense of just how estranged we are from God. And I would just say, you know, this isn't. Um, this isn't universally Christian. Um, and in fact, you know, a lot of the competing, you know, strands of Christianity in Williams's time would really reject his sort of strong Calvinist view here. I mean, but, but it's his sense of the fallenness of the world that actually allows him to appreciate just how much, <laughs> how much human beings, you know, have to be grateful for in their lives together, right? I mean, if you see the world as a veil of tears and you see, you know, it, it, and you see any kind of order as uh, as a kind of miracle, given the fact of our disorderedness, um, our disordered souls, our disordered uh, cosmology, um, you know, I, I sort of joke, it's the, he get, you get the sort of early modern minimalism of the kind of low but solid, but, um, but you know, it, it's this appreciation for the goods of peace, which we see in kind of in theorists that we're more familiar in, you know, the kind of Hobbesian version. Um, but you also get in the, in, in the Williams version, which just says that civil society is, is precious and, um, and, and not to be taken for granted. But there, there's a difference. I mean, correct me. It's been about 10 years since I studied this, but there's a difference between the Lockean notion of toleration and mm -hmm. what you draw from Williams in that Locke, for all we read the letter of toleration and whatever, was actually not that tolerant, particularly vis-a-vis -vis like Catholics <laughs> or atheists or something like that, right? But Locke's notion is a sort of beyond-the-pale model. In other words, mm -hmm. toleration is limiting yourself to certain kinds of speech, and once someone engages in a type of speech that today we might call like hate speech, and to him mm -hmm. we might call like popery or whatever they used to call it right mm -hmm. then once you've passed that line then you're excluded from the conversation right and that actually means that your concept of civility can be weaponized to sort of exclude and yeah. that wasn't the concept of civility and of how you rub along with your devil worshipping neighbor that got <laughs> the american experiment off the ground at least in the case that you're interested in right mm -hmm. Yeah, and that that really it's understanding um, understanding the difference between Williams and Locke. I mean, because because obviously for political theorists we we tend to treat Locke as the kind of architect of liberal toleration, and you know, and and it's just been the case um, not only for theorists but just in 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 history of political thought generally that Williams's position is very often assimilated to the Lockean position. You know, sometimes Williams is sort of discussed. You know, Williams writes the bloody tenet of persecution a good fifty years before um, Locke's letter concerning toleration is published in 1689, um, and people sort of tend to describe it as a kind of overly long and biblically exegetical sort of first draft of the letter concerning toleration. But one of the things I want to bring out in the book, and this really comes out when you focus on the on the the um, the concept of civility, is that in fact what they're doing is very different. And, and it's because they have very different conceptions of civility. So for Williams, 
you know, civility is the kind of virtue that's required in order for us to achieve unmurderous coexistence, as I would call it, unmurderous coexistence in a tolerant society. But civility operates precisely in a way that, um, you know, it, it's a virtue governing disagreement. Um, and it's the kind of minimal conformity to respectful behavior that you needed, that you need to keep the disagreement going. Um, and so any sort of behavior or speech that kind of shuts down the conversation is uncivil on Williams's model. I mean, he thinks the Quakers are tremendously uncivil because, you know, because of, among other things, of their habit of falling into silence whenever anyone tries to argue with them about their beliefs. You know, he thinks that's really uncivil. But the difference for William is that he doesn't think, he, he sees that in a tolerant society, you have to tolerate incivility, right? So, you know, you sort of, you, you draw the line between the civil and uncivil, but you don't mistake that line for the line between the tolerable and the intolerable. Whereas in the Lockean model, which I think is, it really is, is the kind of more familiar and indeed, you know, a version of this can sort of still be seen in, in liberal theories of civility and intolerance. Um, the, the, the line between the civil and uncivil also functions as the line between the tall the tolerable and the in. And so, you know, in Locke's case, um, on the one hand, he seems like much more tolerant, much more inclusive than Williams. But as you as you rightly point out, when he encounters someone that sort of violates his understanding of civility, whether whether they be a Catholic pope, you know, a, a papist, uh, or an atheistical uh, atheistical unbeliever, or indeed just you know this broad category of the intolerant, which you get in the letter concerning toleration. Well, you, for Locke, you just you, you can't tolerate them. For Williams, the idea that you couldn't tolerate the intolerant would just defeat the purpose because he was the most intolerant guy around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which makes sense of it in a way, right? As if you're like a reasonable, whatever that might mean, person. You sort of, there's... Okay, so this might sound like a bizarre lateral leap forward 400 years, <laughs> but there's an analogue in Rawls, right? In that Rawls sort of self-consciously addresses his argument to quote-unquote reasonable people, mm -hmm. right? And I wrote a whole thing, and so, like, if you say, I just hate transgender people and I don't think they're real people, you're excluded from the model on the Rawlsian yeah. account. And I wrote this thing in my MA, which wasn't particularly good, but I think there was a valid point to it, which was the unreasonable of a much bigger percentage of society than you're thinking. I think Rawls in his head, there's like three or four religious lunatics who we can yeah. sort of discount. <laughs> and it's like, no, in contemporary America, 35% of the population at least profess to believe that we're living in the end times. Right. And there might be a gap between professed and actual belief, but even so, like, yeah, well, I mean, if, if you, yeah, which which would in, inflate the numbers, not lessen them. Yeah, and then the number <laughs> of people who have, I mean, there's a spectrum, right? But some form of like class-based, racial-based, gender-based prejudice, you know, and that's not to say. But even the the percentage of like, if you ask people, do you support interracial marriage or something? There's still like a good ten percent of Americans who'll say no, you know, yeah. like so the the number of people who could qualify to be a reasonable person on the Rawlsian model might be a minority. It'd be quite a large minority, but... And I think that's also the case with the Lockean thing, of, like, your, your, your model is actually, it seems reasonable, you're actually excluding most of the society that you live in, whereas yeah. the, the, the Williams one, at least to my understanding, is more of just like a conversational robustness. It's more just like, I'm gonna, you, you might say something that's insulting to me, you might use an ad hominem, and I'm still gonna, I'm not gonna, and I might use one back on you, but that's just, mm -hmm. we're just gonna proceed with the conversation. Yeah, it's it's this awareness, and I think here positionality really matters. And again, this is the another advantage of a historically informed approach. I mean, one thing I, I you know, always want to sort of encourage my students to think about is try to think. So where 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 is John Rawls theorizing from? <laughs> He's theorizing from the government department at Harvard. <laughs> the world looks different. Right. If you're theorizing from somewhere else, and you can play the same game with um with with Locke and and Williams, I mean, I, I don't want to under undercut or undersell Locke's achievement and the kinds of hardships and things that he faced, but it nevertheless remains the case that Locke is theorizing. He's writing the letter in 1685 in Holland in his, as I you know called it in in one one response to the book, his ingeniously self-imposed exile. 
right? He he manages to avoid, you know, he he gets the heck out of, he's like Hobbes, they get the heck out of Dodge, right. you know, when, when the going gets tough. Williams doesn't have that luxury. You know, Williams is associating with people who are manifestly unreasonable, and they think the same of him. Right. That's Williams, condition. Williams finds a way to live with the devil worshippers because he has to. He has to. And and another interesting thing about Williams, which again, I think we need to take seriously, is that he theorizes on the basis of practice. So he's already put this into practice in Rhode Island before he ever publishes any kind of systematic defense of toleration. And that's really key, right? And I think that this is a really interesting point. So he's already sort of uh, falsified practically a lot of sort of things that theorists even today take to be you know, preconditions of theory. So Rawls says, well, you can't have tolerance in a kind of, in a, in a society that's unstable or insecure. Of course, I mean, for, for Williams, he says, well, absolutely, absolutely you can. You, 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 can have, you can have tolerance in a society that is, is profoundly insecure, that's constantly threatened on all sides. I mean, so that's a, another reason to sort of really get into history. It sort of makes you think much more imaginatively and expansively about what kinds of things are possible, what kind of arrangements are possible. Yeah, because, okay, so let's bring this forward to the present then, because there is something unimaginative about the rule. It's almost like a so societal tautology, which is like, well, if you live in a tolerant society, you can achieve toleration. Well, right. I mean, yeah, duh, if everyone's like a secular liberal democrat, then... Thanks, guy. Yeah, yeah you know? <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. Next week will be the second and final part of my interview with Theresa Bejan. And after that, as mentioned, I'll do an Ask Me Anything where I take audience questions. If you enjoy the podcast, please do, as mentioned at the beginning of the show, please do consider supporting it with a donation of whatever level is right to you. And if you want to make sure that you're staying up to date with all of the episodes, you can follow us on social media, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, RSS feed. We've even got a YouTube page now. So the links to support and the links to follow are all on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So please do like and subscribe. If you're able to, please do support. And one final way that you can support the show if you're not able to do so financially, or, you know, you could do both if you're so inclined, is sharing the episodes on your own social media is also super, super valuable. And a big thank you, as always, to everyone who's shared episodes and who sponsors the show. Until then, join us again next week for the final part of our interview on civility and tone policing. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.